And I think in a world that it's becoming more globalized, that becomes a critical piece of the puzzle because, you know, you cannot expect a team that it fully aligns with one kind of persona, one background to understand products that apply to a multicultural world that we're living in. And the second thing that I think it's critical, you know, from a culture standpoint and also the selection process of how we started building Good Moose from day one is the fact that I'm a foreigner made me double down on empathy and self-awareness and being very critical on the things that I see that make me feel comfortable or the things that maybe I don't understand and how I can help myself and the company to overcome those challenges by surrounding myself with the right people for the right challenges that we have. Hi, and welcome to another episode. I'm your host, Brian Maddox. With me today is Daniel Romano from Good Moose. Welcome, Daniel. Thank you for having me. <laughs> so um, it is my pleasure for sure. Can we talk briefly about uh, Good Moose, kind of where it came from? Uh, that'll help us kind of get set a, set a stage and get a context for uh, the marketing conversation that we're going to have. Of course. So uh, Good Moose is a growth marketing agency. We were originally incubated at Red Hunter, a big branding agency here in Danbo, Brooklyn. And we became an independent company this last year. And we mostly help uh, companies to grow in a sustainable way uh, with a lot of understanding of all the different stages of companies and a lot of uh, media experience under our belts. Prior to start, starting Good Moose, I had a company we raised venture capital. We opened offices in Tel Aviv, Palo Alto, New York, and we got acquired by one of the biggest social media agencies in the world. And prior to that, I was the first employee of the company that was running media in 2007, 2008, before Facebook, before Google were like the big players. Uh, actually, Google was a big player, but you know, before Facebook and all the social media channels and platforms mm. that you know now, and that company skyrocketed and had an IP on the London Stock Exchange. Ah, cool. So you've been in the advertising marketing space now for you know pretty much the online space since it's really been uh, taken off. Um, how... How is Good Moose kind of positioned? What's the market differentiation that you have? Um, and, and how are you approaching the market space? So when I started thinking about the idea of creating Good Moose together with my partners, I was very adamant to make sure that we were creating an agency with all the things that we love about the industry and with all the things that we hated about the industry. And I had a very interesting tasting of that post-acquisition of my previous company, understanding that then... You start talking about processes, not people. You start talking about efficiencies and not how to make the right thing for the client. Or you start talking about, let's not show that, let's show that. Um, so we created Good Moose on the three main premises. The first one is everybody that it's on the table needs to have real, actual media execution experience. Uh, we saw that there was a lot of, I would say, the Inefficiencies in big agencies, people talking without knowing what they're talking about, salespeople trying to solve things that are not achievable just to close a deal or a transaction, or people just wasting people's time because they will strategize on things that maybe are not relevant because they were not hands-on knowing exactly what the tools are capable of providing or helping you to achieve. The second one was full transparency. I saw so many things that was not super happy when we got acquired that uh, we're not in alignment with my values, which is in order to be the right partner for somebody that it's giving me the opportunity and also the privilege to help them grow their business. 
they need to trust me. And there's no trust if you cannot show exactly what's going on. So everything that we do, it's owned by the clients. It's fully accessible to clients. And if they want to try something they never tried, we're going to connect them with the partners or vendors. And we're going to be the ones getting the keys to access, but those properties are theirs, not ours. And the last one is making sure that we're not incentivized in the wrong places. So we don't take any kickbacks or incentives, not from platforms, not from vendors. When we make a recommendation, when I make a recommendation or any team member makes a recommendation, it's a recommendation we think is going to be better for the client needs. And depending on the stage, those platforms, those vendors are going to change. Uh, you have no idea how much money is being made on the back end of like, I'll recommend you, but just give me a kickback. And what you have is you're pushing for solutions that might not be the right fit for the clients. So these are the three main premises that we created uh, when we started Good Moves, and we've kept that promise until today, and we're planning to keep it for the future. And so you mentioned that this is those three kind of things that you didn't like about the industry and the way you're behaving, this full transparency, um, are essentially your responses to the way the industry was run. Um, can you describe a typical experience that you had that really was like, yeah, we're definitely not going to do what they did? Um, that that kind of whole context, I think for some, it's for some of our listeners, it's going to make sense. But uh, but a, kind of an example uh, might might just bring it to life. For sure. So one of the things that it's very popular in big agencies is trying to align business with billing cycles or billing needs. So one thought, one thing that I saw that many agents were doing, besides recommending partners because there were bodies of the CEO and they were recommending right. and there was some agreement on the back end, when most of the times that solution didn't make sense because it was either too expensive or not relevant for the client, was in some instances stopping media at the end of each month to have a clear number. And then starting media all over again on the following month. So what you have here is you're putting actually inefficiencies from a performance standpoint into the channels because basically some of the things need to go to learning phase again just because it's more convenient from a billing standpoint. So okay. this is something that I flagged many times and say like, look, we're just hurt on performance and it takes us maybe seven to 15 days to get back to where we were. So instead of having the full cycle of efficiencies, we're having 15 days. Why are we doing that? And I was, was like, because it's easier from a billing standpoint. Other instances, mistakes were made and were not disclosed to the client. Okay, the client will never know, will never realize. And the reality is, if we screw up, we need to be accountable for that. Because otherwise, that's going to come out. And, you know, if you're not being honest when you have to, then it's going to be very complicated to get trust when somebody realizes there was a mistake and that was not shared with the client. So our POV is, if there's a mistake, the first thing that we do is we fully understand what is the impact of that? We fully analyze what is it that we need to do to make it right. And then following to that, we talk to the client, we explain everything, we explain what was the impact, and then we take full responsibility because at the end of the day, we're being paid to be reliable and also to be trustworthy. Yeah, yeah. No, that's that's super important. And I think it does help cement that. So what are you guys doing to grow your own practice? Um, it, it, I imagine that... Um, uh, if you're like most of the firms that I've worked with, it's one of those things where you've built a lot of good relationships and the business kind of has a certain amount of momentum. Um, but very few folks in your space are actually using their own stuff. So what's working for you? What's not working for you? What are you going to try in the upcoming year? That's a great question. So I think that what it's working for us is that we have a very clear POV of who we are. We don't try to hide that. We don't try to pretend to be something that we're not. 
And I think that we're living in a world that, you know, it doesn't, it's no longer sustainable to pretend to be something you're not because eventually it's going to come out. So we know we're not the right fit for everybody. We're not the right fit for a client that is looking for an agency that's just going to execute. We're not the right fit for somebody that's looking for, you know, yes, that's, we're going to do whatever you tell us, but we're going to be a great fit for somebody who wants a team that will be very critical and be the best partner to figure out what's a way to succeed. And I think that not everybody's willing to have the tough conversations about, hey, your product maybe is not as good as you think, or maybe the pricing is not right, or maybe this website that you spend hundreds of thousands of dollars is not good. But once you're above that and beyond that, and you understand that we're here for the long term, uh, you understand that you know maybe those parts of criticism or reality checks are important to make sure that we're in this together. Because uh, the reality is, we only own a small part of the success of a client, right? Media is just one component. If you do it right, you bring the right people to the website, but eventually they need to deliver on the promise and they need to make the sale. And if the product's not good, people are not going to come back. LTV is going to be low. So the metrics are not going to make sense in the long term. So this is a conversation that we're going to take the lead on our responsibility, but I want to make sure that also you're being accountable on your side uh, to deliver on the brand promise. Otherwise, you know, this is just a waste of time for everybody. And this goes from the onboarding of the client to actually the selection process of who we're going to be working with. Because we want to make sure that we're not working with clients or products that we don't believe they have a shot or we would never use it or we tried it, we hated it. Because at the end of the day, right, you don't want to be selling things to people that don't want to buy. And I think that's a critical piece. And that also applies to how we promote ourselves, how we position ourselves, that we don't want to force anybody to do the things that they shouldn't be doing. We just want to do the right thing to make sure that we're all investing our resources and time into things that actually can scale and can be successful. Right. And and so how does that inform your your like tactical lead gen? So what are you doing with that kind of philosophy? How does that turn into your brand exposure out in the media? What does it look like in terms of your funnel? How does it feed together? That's amazing. Yeah. So basically First of all, we were very lucky to be incubated at a, such a reputable branding agency because that gave us the opportunity to also see how you provide the best service out there. And also gave us visibility on what are the real needs of clients and also a good filter of understanding this team has what it takes to be successful versus this team is just trying to get a shortcut and they're not here for the long haul. The second thing is... Once you start working and you get the opportunity to work, and again, I've been involved in launching at least 200 plus brands by now. So we've seen many things and there are some patterns that you can recognize to know, okay, I'm picking on this ones and I'm just staying away from these other ones because it doesn't feel like it's going to be a right fit. And if you do really good work over time, this time goes by and you start growing, you get more referrals from clients. And the reality is, we're almost a 40 people company at this point. We're getting referrals and that's enough to sustain a 30, 40% year over year growth. And we don't have any rush to grow further than that, because that means that I need to rush into hiring people that might not be the right fit. And I think one of the biggest advantages of being an independent company, being profitable and being here for a long term and knowing that you're building these relationships that eventually can turn into referrals in five, 10 years from now, is that you can really focus on doing the right things and delivering the right work. And I think that that's the best form of marketing. I have a marketing degree, I have an MBA from Cal University, and at the end of the day, 
it doesn't matter how much you talk about things if you don't deliver on really, really excellent work. If you do excellent work, people are going to come back. We're kicking off right now uh, with a client that was referred to us that we worked with this person three years ago. So, And this person moved two companies already. And I think this is kind of a testament of understanding that if you're doing the right things, people are going to come back. They're going to appreciate that. And also you're going to help them grow because if you're really good on selecting the right winners, you can have clients like one client that we have that when we started working with them, was doing $60 million of revenue. Now it's doing $600 million of revenue. And that doesn't happen from one day to the other, but it happens when you have the right things aligned. Right. And and I, I imagine that alignment with the customer's objectives and your own uh, does facilitate that ongoing growth. One of the things, though, that um, that I've heard from other guests on the show is that it's really challenging to... Um, to manage your sort of timelines and your projections when you are relying on referrals for growth. What is your, you know, how do you deal with the fact that referrals may or may not come on the timeline that you need them in order to make your objectives? So it's, it's completely correct that you cannot forecast referrals because that's something that happens sporadically. And sometimes you have four, sometimes you have two, sometimes you have 20, sometimes you have zero. But what you can forecast is how much growth you're going to generate for your active clients. And working on retention and working on growth of your clients can give you at least 70% of what you need to forecast for the growth that you're expecting to do. So I'm always, you know, very keen on focusing on things that we can fully control versus the things that maybe we don't have full control, but we can just help them to happen, you know, and sometimes lack plays a big component. But once we have an account and once we're working with a client, we know that it's in our hands to fully figure out what needs to be happening in order to get them where we want them to be. And the second component that it's pretty important to keep in mind is that when we're doing this effort, many times we'll encounter ourselves at the bottleneck for growth. It's not media related. It's related to something else. So it's our responsibility to be more entrepreneurial and figure out how we can support that, even though we're not getting paid for that. So let's say that we have a client that we have maxed out performance across the channels that we're leveraging media, but we know that if we increase conversion rate by another 0.2, 0.3%, we could make them grow even higher and faster. Then in that case, maybe we'll work with you know some partners that do conversion rate optimization or website development to figure out how we can lock that bottleneck. We're not getting paid for that, but we know that that's the next bottleneck that we need to unlock in order to be growing at the pace that we need to grow. So I think it creates kind of a culture of understanding that we're not being paid to run media. We're being paid to solve problems. And as long as we're very aware of what are the main business objectives of our clients and our partners, Mm -hmm. we'll be able to be the right support and partners to figure out a way through. So, and, but you raise a very interesting point in that too, though, the liability for your growth now, given that your ability to grow wallet share or scale, you know, the company is contingent upon your client's ability to scale. So, you know, you can continue to, you know, stuff leads in the front door if they can't capitalize on them or take action, your growth is capped as well. So how do you manage that uh, in, in those situations? I think that ties to the selection process of who we end up working and who we pass because we don't think it's the right fit. We have a criteria of actually three main things that we ask ourselves after the first introductory call. First question is, do we enjoy 
working with this team or do we think we're going to enjoy working <laughs> with this team? The reality is our business is service business. We're only as good as the last conversation or last interaction that we have with the client. So I need to rely on my team and I need to make sure that my team is the best team out there. So if I'm losing people because I'm bringing clients that are going to be assholes or not enjoyable to work with, my team is going to leave. So eventually that's not sustainable. That's not the business model that we are. First priority is making sure that it's not about me only enjoying them, but if I know that that's going to be a good fit with the team. The second criteria is, do we think that the product or service that the client is trying to sell has any kind of value for some audiences? And we can recognize that. It's okay that maybe they're selling a product that doesn't apply to me, but I need to be able to quickly identify who this audience is and also understand or gouge that that's a big enough audience to scale. And the last one, which might sound a little bit tricky and counterintuitive, is do we believe that we can actually make an impact on this client? And this, it's a kind of a self-awareness check on us, saying like, okay, but are we good doing this? Have we done this in the past? Do we feel confident that we can do this? And I think this is a critical piece because if I, you know, client passes the first two checks, but the third one is, I never done this. I have no idea how to tackle this. The likelihood for us to be successful, it's lower than when we're confident that, okay, this is a product we've done and we know for a fact that we can do a better job than what they've been doing so far. So that's a moment that, you know, we come with our POV and culture, which is, hey, we love the team. We love the product. We're not super savvy on this specific vertical, but we think we have a good angle on how to make it happen. If you're willing to take a risk with us, we're happy and super excited to make this work. But if not, we completely understand. And just putting that upfront, day one, before the client spends money, because the reality is our reputation is more important than just having a client working for one, two months, failing, and then just eventually having somebody that has you know not nice things to say about us. Uh, so that's, I think, a critical piece of making sure that while somebody, or while we decide to partner and the clients decide to partner with us, we're set for success with the hopes that that can scale and can continue growing as we do the right things. Yeah, yeah. And so um, I want to pivot a little bit because you mentioned something here that I think is an interesting starter for some kind of other insight, uh, and that is uh, the culture. So you mentioned starting up with um, uh, a couple of your previous sort of at-bats, and you had multinational teams. You've worked with multinational teams. You yourself uh, are uh, from Argentina, if I remember correctly. Um, so if you can kind of tell me a little bit about what that looks like, because a lot of the brands that obviously you're working with will have a strong sort of cultural component that needs to be addressed as well. What's it like managing a multinational kind of team working on uh, those cross-culture communication challenges? Yeah, I think that since we started working remotely, we opened the opportunity to hire talent wherever the talent is and found ways to make things more successful with the challenges that the new times of you know working remotely bring to any company. Uh, and one thing that I realized also as somebody that wasn't born and raised here in the US is when I got into interacting with the agency world, I saw that there was diversity was not there. And you know, everybody looked kind of the same and felt like the same and everybody came from the same schools. And that was very possible because I came, you know, I, I came from Argentina and then I work in Tel Aviv Israel for many years in ad tech. And I realized that 
there was an opportunity to actually bring people that were really good, but maybe were not giving a shot here because of mm. their career paths or things like that. And I find myself uh, myself understanding that you know there was a massive opportunity to hire amazing talent not here in the U.S. That we're very excited also uh, about the opportunity and we're willing to bring their passion into the mix uh, in order to make sure that we would stand out on being the company that really cares and the company that really has a POV. And I think that you know at the end of the day, having a POV makes you different. And making you different means that you're not going to be a good fit for everybody, but you're going to be the best fit for somebody. And that, for me, was a big opportunity. So when you look at Good Moose numbers, our diversity numbers are way, way higher than most of the agents out there working. And I think in a world that it's becoming more globalized, that becomes a critical piece of the puzzle because, you know, you cannot expect a team that it fully aligns with one kind of persona, one background to understand products that apply to a multicultural world that we're living in. And the second thing that I think it's critical, you know, from a culture standpoint and also the selection process of how we started building Good Moose from day one is the fact that I'm a foreigner made me double down on empathy and self-awareness and being very critical on the things that I see that make me feel comfortable or the things that maybe I don't understand and how I can help myself and the company to overcome those challenges by surrounding myself with the right people for the right challenges that we have. So I think that this idea of curiosity and bringing people from different backgrounds makes us also pretty special because when you think about the leadership team, I come from you know entrepreneurial. I had a company, raised venture capital, grew the company, got acquired. I have team members are coming from like, agency background, they know exactly how to scale and create processes and be very efficient on scaling and multi-channel strategy and planning. And I have team members that came from Google or Facebook and know how the vendor side works and how the platforms actually use their technology in order to be better. So it's kind of a conversation that gets really interesting and exciting because everybody's contributing from a different angle to make sure that we're solving a problem because the reality is there's no such thing as a solution fits all. And I think that's what big agencies have been trying to do create a template and push clients through that funnel and templatized approach, which makes most of the clients fail and be frustrated with the industry and frustrated with agencies because they're not treated as unique brands. But the reality is each brand is different. So each strategy needs to be tailored to the differences of that brand and the uniqueness of that brand. Otherwise, you're going to get lost in so much noise and it's going to be very hard to scale. Yeah. And I think, you know, what what that offers you in terms of that that multicultural kind of approach and having your team with that as well is you get to you get to approach different market spaces almost organically because you have you very likely have folks in that region or folks in that space and understand the local cultures so that uh, how do you kind of coordinate that though i mean that sounds like a a complicated task when you've got somebody maybe that's working on you know an ad campaign in tel aviv and they say no no this doesn't work here how do you how do you work those things with the client? How do you work them internally when those conflicts come up? I think that that ties back to self-awareness. Knowing how much you don't know and knowing that there's probably somebody that you need to trust to take the lead and make that decision. Uh, we Goodness is a very flat structure in the sense that everybody's opinion matters. And we always say that the best idea needs to win, not whoever's saying or sharing that idea. 
So most of the times I think my job is asking questions. Who is the right person to figure this out? Who has mm. been right most of the times? And how we can get the answer because from the get-go, we don't feel, I don't feel confident that maybe I'm the right person to answer that question. And I think that that trust in the team and that profile of team members that we bring on board that are more doers than people are just waiting for a brief to get things done. And people feel comfortable also voicing their opinions. It's a critical piece of, you know, building this and being able to be successful, even though we're not sharing the same office space or even in the fact, you know, sometimes we haven't seen our faces for the last year in person. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's awesome. All right. As we start to wrap up, I've got a couple questions. Uh, first things first. Um, who's like the best fit for your organization in terms of a client base? Who would you like a connection to or referral to? Folks that are listening on the show are well-networked. So I'd love to see if we can help you scratch any itches you have. Yeah. So I think that we work across the whole gamut of uh, clients from pre-launch to corporate clients. But I think that the place where we can add the biggest amount of value is either growth stage companies, meaning companies that have figured out uh, market product fed, that they have certain scale, maybe six figures, seven figures budgets, but they're stuck on how to take that to the next level. That's where our team can really add massive value and help to accelerate that growth process in a very smart way. Or corporate clients that they realize that that the the approach of big agency with templatizers things and always going through the same brief process and everything it's no longer working for them and they're okay with trying to be a little more disruptive or shake things up a little bit to be more successful and they're willing to go against some of the status quo of like okay no we do this in this same way for the last 10 years so we'll continue doing that because i think that having experience with the pre-launch companies gives us a really interesting perspective of what's going to be the right thing for scale, maybe in one or two years, because they have less risk averse and they're willing to try more things. And we can take those learnings in order to make the less cool industries or verticals cooler and more interesting and also more edgy. Cool. I like it. Uh, and the last question for today um, is in your journey, uh, you've, you sound like you've picked up a lot of different things. Uh, but what are the three biggest kind of takeaways that have uh, really influenced you and in your approach to this space? I would say first one, self-awareness. Knowing what are your strengths, knowing what are your weaknesses, and surrounding yourself with the right team members that can help you be strong in all the places that you don't feel that you bring a lot of value to the table. I always think that, you know, if you want to date, you need to know if you're the best first date or the best third date for somebody and figure out your way to be in the place where you're at your prime. And I think that's a critical piece. And sometimes uh, people forget to be critical with themselves or at least to take a look to see, okay, but I'm not that good there, but maybe there's somebody that can be great and we can do great things together. The second one is, Going through this entrepreneurial journey and just being involved in different agencies, this is a third agency that I'm involved with early stages to as founder is resilience. I don't expect people to work as hard as I'm willing to work to make things happen, but expect people to feel that passion and understand that if I'm not giving up, they should not give up. And sometimes things feel like, you know, impossible tasks. But the reality is only when you're out of your comfort zone, really incredible things happen. But 
to achieve that, you need to be resilient and not give up because you're going to get slapped many times. You're going to do a lot of work that's not it's going to take you nowhere. But the reality is you need to keep on pushing and just hold forward as long as you need until those things start to trickle down. And the last one, I think it's confidence, which is something that you can either build or sometimes, you know, also from if you're lucky enough and you have a really good family, they will help you to build that as a kid. And I think that with that confidence that you're capable of doing things, it's very hard to achieve anything. And that doesn't mean that you you need to be blindsided or think that you're capable of doing everything, but being confident of what you bring to the table, being confident to speak your voice, being confident to, to trust your gut and trust what you're seeing, what you're feeling, or also walking away when maybe you would love to have that revenue, but it's not the right fit for you. And I think that's a, that's a really important thing that sometimes we, we ignore. Um, and, and it's important to keep it always, you know, in checks because, you know, that confidence uh, it's going to lead you through the path of growth and scaling and also working with people and also just sharing that vision of like, we're going to achieve this. And even if the odds look against us, we're going to make it happen. And, and I think that's, that's a critical piece that has helped me a lot. And also I'm very thankful to my family for helping me shape that as well. That's awesome. Daniel, I want to thank you so much for being on the show today. I totally uh, uh, valued everything you've had to say, and it's been it's been great. I think our listeners are really in for a treat. Thank you so much. Hey, you. Yes, you. It's uh, 2024 and you don't have a podcast yet, or maybe you do, but you're struggling with it. Uh, we will talk to you about that uh, for free. We'll help you figure out uh, where you might be stuck, uh, whether or not we can help you for sure. But also, uh, if you don't have one yet, what are the like first five things you can do? Uh, what are some great angles that you can use to make sure that your podcast was sustainable as you start to develop that moving forward? Uh, those consults are free. So reach out at the link below uh, in the show notes or email me at brian at podcastchef.com. Thanks. Hi, this is Brian. Thanks for listening to the show. Uh, our website, podcastchef.com, has a ton of useful information about how to best leverage podcasting to help you solve some of your business goals and challenges. You can also schedule a demo uh, where we can show you how specifically Podcast Chef and our team can help you with some of your podcasting goals. Thanks.